Right now on Netflix, there's a documentary series covering a fringe Mormon group known as the Fundamental LDS Church, or FLDS. It is a polygamous group where the men have multiple wives. It's led, it is really a cult led by cruel leaders who force um, the adherents to pool money under one resource, under their control. They've been convicted of sexually abusing young girls, dismissing young men as competition, and even trafficking humans. It is a horrifically evil and abusive cult, and the documentary series begins by quoting Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Somewhat closer to home for us, the Southern Baptist Convention recently released the findings of a third-party investigation into their own leadership and its handling of sexual abuse in the church. The report was commissioned by the people of the Southern Baptist churches. They urged leadership to pursue the investigation, worried that there was widespread abuse taking place in the churches and not being handled well. What they found and what was detailed in the 400-page report was maybe worse than what was anticipated. Repeatedly, key leaders in the convention minimized or ignored claims of sexual abuse in their churches, fearing the possibility of expensive lawsuits. Those who pushed for reforms were often characterized as participating in a demonic scheme to distract from the gospel. And beyond that, it was determined that some key leaders kept a list of known abusive pastors, not for disciplinary reasons, um, but to know who they were so they could protect them. It was even found that a former president of the SBC had been credibly accused of sexual assault. These heartbreaking accounts demonstrate a few things. First, that scripture, which is itself good, can be twisted and misused, just as Satan himself misused and twisted scripture in tempting Jesus. It can be misapplied for wicked purposes, such as the abuse of women. Second, we see that just because a group or specific leaders in a church are religious and even claim to be followers of Jesus in the Bible and have their doctrinal positions in a row, it does not necessarily mean they will walk in righteousness. Just because a group claims to follow Christ, it does not mean it will treat women and Christians in a way that honors Jesus. So we must say, without a doubt, that those who claim to follow Jesus can be misogynistic. And by misogynistic, I mean, according to the dictionary definition, strongly prejudiced against women. Many throughout history who have claimed to be part of Christ's church have treated women horrifically. If you're frustrated by that, I am as well, and we all are. And if you are to talk to non-Christians today, this may be one of the objections that is raised against Christianity. Isn't Christianity misogynistic? Isn't it prejudiced against women? Isn't it oppressive and repressive to women? And that's our big question this morning. Is Christianity misogynistic? That's the question I want to get at this morning. Is Christianity misogynistic? Now note, I am not asking if Christianity has been misused to mistreat women? The obvious answer to that question is yes. Have Christians or those who have claimed to be Christian 
used the teachings of Scripture or verses from Scripture to mistreat women? Yes. But that is a different question than, is Christianity itself misogynistic? Are the teachings of Scripture misogynistic? Is Christianity at its core and in its best representation is the teaching and the faith of Christ, is that itself misogynistic and bad for women? To answer that question, I'm going to take a strange approach. There is, as I thought about this, there are a couple approaches we could take. We could go through history and show that wherever Christianity has spread, women have prospered because of it. And we could demonstrate that historically. But I'm not going to take that approach. I could go through all of Scripture and show all the places in Scripture where uh, the Bible speaks of women glowingly and their gifts and their ministries and how they walk with Jesus and ways or verses that are maybe more comfortable for us. And we could go through all Scripture and prove to you that Christianity is really good for women. I, we could take that approach. I'm not taking that approach either. I'm taking maybe a far more foolish approach. I, I tried to go to the most potentially offensive passage I could find, and we're going to walk through that passage, a passage that would be potentially um, offensive to our modern ears, a passage that, if we were to read it out in public, would get us in the church criticized surely. I want to go through that kind of passage and see if we can walk through this and explain this. Can we explain this as it is and then from there determine, is Christianity and what the Bible teaches bad for women? And there's some disclaimers up front. I'm not going to address every possible question we could address this morning. There are too many. And we'd be here all day, and I don't think we want that. I'll admit up front, there are other ways some interpret this passage. There's volumes and volumes and volumes written on this section of Scripture. But my goal and objective this morning is to interpret this as plainly as I can, not according to any modern sensibility, but according to what the text is saying itself. I want to let the Bible speak on its own terms as much as we possibly can by God's grace, because as a good Owana uh, servant, I'm not ashamed of what Scripture says. And I don't think we need to be either. So we'll try and explain what Scripture says by God's grace, and then you can decide for yourselves whether or not the teaching of Scripture is good for women, and whether what the Bible says is true, even if it contradicts what we would hear commonly in our world. So let's turn to that passage. We're going to read it as a whole first, verses 8 through 15, from Paul's letter to Timothy in chapter 2. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness 
with self-control. Simple enough? And this is going to be fun. All right, let's dig into it. First, I want you to know that this passage is all about how men and women should conduct themselves in the church. And Paul starts with the men. That's the context as Paul's writing to Timothy, his young protege, and Timothy is kind of overseer of a number of churches, house churches in the realm of Ephesus. And Paul's writing to Timothy, Timothy, this is how I want you to have the churches conducted in Ephesus in this area. So uh, here's how they're to behave. Here's how they're to worship together. And then we get to this passage here. And first, Paul speaks to the demeanor of men in the church. That's the first verse, verse 8. He's going to talk directly to the men. Verse 8, the demeanor of men in the church. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So here, Paul is speaking directly to and about the men in the church. Notice he says his desire is for in every place this to happen. This is important. This will come up later. These aren't just words for a couple churches in one time and place. These are words for churches in every place, not bound by context. But wherever the church is gathered and worshiping in every place, this is what Paul would desire. Not just in Ephesus, but everywhere that the men should pray. Another note here that might seem obvious at first, but it's important for us to note, Paul is speaking directly to the men. Why? Because the Bible has this fundamental assumption in teaching that men and women are different. That was not a controversial statement a few years ago. That is now a controversial statement in our world. Men and women are different. It goes all the way back to Genesis and how God made people. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there in creation, male and female are created. They are both made in the image of God. So both have equal value, equal glory, equal purpose. They are both image bearers of God. So there is no differentiation in value or worth or superiority or inferiority or anything like that. They are both equally glorious before God as image bearers. But they are different. And God intentionally made men and women different. Different characteristics, different biology, different roles to play in the world. Sometimes we think about our differences in very shallow ways, and I don't think that's always helpful. So we say, like, oh, girls like dresses and boys like trucks, and, and that's how we differentiate them. I don't think that's always super helpful. And a lot of the differences we point out between men and women are actually culturally conditioned. So I remember talking to a pastor who's doing missions work overseas in a place, and he was walking along with some of the men, and one of the men kind of walked next to him really close and grabbed his hand and was holding his hand while he talked to him, and he's, going, he's like, Wait, what is this? But that was just how the men carried themselves in that culture. Just a different thing. We might see that as, well, that's a little bit unmanly to hold hands while walking and talking, but that wasn't the case there in that culture. Some of the ways that we think about men and women are culturally conditioned. We want to be sensitive to that. But there are deeper things about men and women that are different that accord with Scripture. That Scripture speaks to what makes us men and women. Paul touches on something that I think is inherent to men when he calls men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. 
We teach our kids to fold your hands when praying. At that time, the common posture for praying was lifting up hands. That's not really the point. The point is to pray. In fact, Paul's going to ask the men to pray in a specific way. How? Without anger or quarreling. Why? I think because Paul knows and God knows men are distinctly prone to fighting in anger. That is not to say that women don't get angry or women don't fight. But Paul is recognizing the fact that men have a distinct proclivity to get angry and to fight, and that when they do, it is particularly destructive. So Paul's going to tailor his admonition for the men. Men, I want you to be peaceful and gentle when you pray and worship in the church. There would have been a temptation to do a lot of fighting. They were in a place under a lot of false teaching, contending for the faith, having to be strong in conviction under a lot of pressure. And anywhere there, where there is a lot of strong conviction, a lot of teaching that's threatening the church, the men might want to contend. And Paul's advising them that while you contend in the faith and fight for truth, make sure that a quarrelsome spirit doesn't infect your worship. I think that's a word for us. And men will face a particular temptation to quarrelsomeness and fighting, contending. And here we have a reminder, and a reminder all throughout Scripture, that our call is to gentleness. Jesus himself was meek and humble. Gentleness is a requirement for elders and leaders in the church. Patience, kindness, gentleness are fruits of the Spirit. The part of what it means to be a Christian is to pursue a peaceful gentleness even while you have strength and conviction. And I would say to all of you, and maybe particularly women, if you want to avoid a harmful, abusive church, look for the church where the men are praying peacefully and are carrying, carrying themselves in gentleness, not fighting, not angry, but rather fervent in prayer before God. If the men carry themselves this way, it'll go a long way towards developing a church that does not harm those under its leadership. So that is Paul's word for how men are to behave in the church. And now, he will speak to the women. In verses 9 through 12, Paul will talk about the demeanor of women in the church. And he'll highlight two key traits for the demeanor of women in the church. How women should conduct themselves as they gather together and live as the church. First, Paul touches on how women are to adorn themselves in the church. Look at verses 9 through 10. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So in the same way that Paul calls men to not be ruled by anger or quarreling, Paul's going to call women to conduct themselves in a certain way in the church. He's going to start by talking about how they adorn themselves, encouraging them to pursue modest attire. 
That's the big picture principle, the universal principle that Paul will put forward here. Adorn yourselves modestly and with good works. Why does Paul talk to women specifically about this? Well, in the same way that you know, women can get angry and fight, we have Paul speaking distinctly male temptation there, so also men can struggle with immodesty and adorning themselves improperly. And if you don't believe me, um, you can find the social media account Preacher's Sneakers, which focuses on pastors and the expensive shoes that they wear, people like Stephen Furtick and the, and the exorbitant amount of money men can spend on attire. So, you know, again, look at the health and wealth preachers, your Joel Osteen's and his pearly whites, Stephen Furtick, those types, and you can see that men also fail in this uh, improperly adorning themselves in the church. That's my own judgment call there, right? Um, so it's not that this temptation to be focused on how you put yourself out there is unique or exclusive to women, but it is a distinct temptation, is what Paul is saying. There is a reason the fashion and beauty industry targets women in the way that it does. It doesn't only target women, but it does especially target women. Why? There are a number of challenges and burdens placed upon women to look a certain way, and women can use that for their own power and advantage as well. There is a distinct burden, challenge, temptation upon women in the way they adorn themselves. So Paul will put forth a universal principle. Adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. With what is proper for women who profess godliness. With good works. That's what you should pursue. And then Paul uses a contextual illustration example of what women should avoid. And this was a cultural example. This does not mean that women for all time can never braid their hair, never wear jewelry. That would be a heartbreaking thing to one of my daughters who loves to braid her hair every time she comes to church, right? The church would be in violation of this throughout history if the examples Paul uses were universal in their command. But Paul's using local examples to underline and illustrate his universal principle. Universal principle... Be careful how you adorn yourself with modesty and properly. Here's the example, according to that time and place. Not with braided hair or pearl or jewelry. That was the common attire of the elite, of the palatial women, and for the prostitutes in that time and place. This is how they dressed. And Paul's saying, avoid that. Don't look to them as your examples in attire. A more modern way of saying this might be, women don't come to, dress, to, come to church dressed as pop stars. Don't look to Dua Lipa or Cardi B or Madonna or if you're of a certain age. Don't look to them as your examples when you dress yourself. Some might say, well, isn't this a little bit misogynistic for a man to even comment on what a woman should wear or not wear? And certainly men have done this inappropriately throughout time, and there have been ways in which men have called women not to wear certain things in a way that almost puts 
the blame on women for how men think. Don't wear that. You're going to cause men to lust. Well, secret, men will lust no matter what you're wearing. This is the tongue-in-cheek truth about sinfulness. There's ways you can help or not help. But women, it is not your responsibility what men think. So there are ways we could talk about what women wear that would be unhelpful, and I don't want to burden you unhelpfully. But what Paul is doing is calling you to ask yourself, what's your motivation? When you adorn yourself, what's in your heart? What are you drawing attention to in worship? Are you there to worship God or draw attention to yourself? He's calling, in many ways, for women to not objectify themselves before others, but to give glory and praise to God with good works. Then Paul addresses another way women should conduct themselves in the church in verses 11 through 12. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I'm going to give you a startling key to interpreting this passage. It means what it says. And throughout most of church history, that wasn't all that controversial. And this text was essentially interpreted consistently. Then in the 1900s, and particularly in the 60s for some reason, a whole bunch of scholarship and new interpretations started arising around this passage. And those of you who lived through the 60s might understand why this started to get reinterpreted. Alternative proposals came forward trying to get around the plain meaning of the text. So what are some of those alternative proposals? Well, someone said this passage is only meant to be applied in this context, in this time and place in Ephesus. However, remember in verse 8 what Paul said, I desire in every place this should be done. Paul's giving universal principles for churches everywhere. And someone said, well, the women in Ephesus were especially obnoxious or ignorant. They were especially uneducated or especially overbearing, so Paul's speaking just directly to them. But nothing in history shows that the women in Ephesus were any different than women everywhere else. There's no evidence of a particularly rebellious group of women in Ephesus that Paul's speaking to. Someone said that this command is just like the gold and jewelry and braided hair, just a local application that doesn't apply everywhere. Well, I'm going to show you in a few verses that Paul doesn't say, don't do this because of the context and the time, place, and Ephesus. Paul's going to say, I command this because of creation itself. And he's going to go back to the roots of creation, not just a local context. This is not just a local application, but something grounded and rooted in creation itself. Some have tried to get around this by saying, these are just the words of Paul, not of Jesus. Which is a way of saying, well, we could throw out any part of the New Testament we don't like. We should be reminded that Jesus never wrote a book of the Bible. They were all written by apostles. The apostles have a unity in what they teach and what they think. And we see all of Scripture as written not just by human authors, but by the Holy Spirit himself. 
So we can't just throw out parts because we don't like them. Our goal is to interpret them accurately, and then, once we do, to apply them appropriately. And we have to come to the conclusion, I think, that cultural influence around us makes us want to avoid or ignore this passage. Author Claire Smith wrote in her book, God's Good Design, about a friend from a different culture that she showed these words to and asked for her reading of the passage and to see what she thought and she had any trouble with it. And her friend said, no, it's easy. Paul's saying women shouldn't teach in the church because that's the way God wants it. That's how another culture or a woman from another culture interpreted that. We have to admit that sometimes our own cultural bias will affect the way we interpret things. So let's try and interpret this according to what the text says itself and what these verses say. First, let's note that it says women should learn. Right? That's the command. Women, learn. This is contrary to some cultures at that time throughout history who did not want women to be taught or educated. There were rabbinical schools who excluded women from their education. So this is contrary to that, saying, no, in the church, women are to gather with men and they're all to learn together. So the th- first thing to notice is that this is a command for women to learn and to be educated, to be trained up in the Christian faith. Second, this is not saying that women should never speak in church. That's not what this is saying. We know that because elsewhere Paul will say and command and, and exhort women to pray, to prophesy, to speak in the gathered congregation. So this is not an unlimited ban on all women speaking in the church. That's not his point. His point is a demeanor and a spirit of quietness in the church. But elsewhere we'll see in Scripture, 1 Corinthians, and we'll get there when we return to that sermon series, that women did speak and prayed out loud in the church. So it's not calling for total silence. Third, this does not outlaw women from all forms of teaching or ministry. That's not what that's saying either. Remember Priscilla and Aquila who taught Apollos, things about the gospel. They were a husband and wife who came and taught Apollos. Women are called to teach each other, and women in the church in Titus 2. Paul notes that Timothy himself, who he's speaking to, was taught the gospel from whom? his mother and his grandmother, right? So this is not banning women from teaching everywhere. That's not what the text is saying. Nor is this text calling women to submit to all men everywhere. So you cannot take this passage out of context and say that all women everywhere have to submit to all men. That is an abuse of the passage. It's not what it's saying. This text has a specific kind of submission and quietness in mind. It's narrow in its scope. It says that women should submit to the teaching of the male leadership of the church. That may sound offensive, but note that that call to submission actually itself is not exclusive to women. Hebrews 13:17 calls all the people in the church, men and women, to submit to the teachers and leaders in the church. So when we're called to a specific kind of submission here, to not try to take over the role of the teacher and authority over the church. This is the one restriction Scripture places on women in the church. Any teaching or authority function that places women over men in the church, that is what Paul is restricting here and in churches everywhere. This comes with the understanding that there is such a thing as authoritative teaching in the church. There's doctrine handed down from the apostles, established by the elders in the church, who have authority to teach it and to bind it on the lives of Christians. That's the kind of teaching Paul has in mind here. 
any kind of teaching in the church that establishes the doctrine of the church, corrects or disciplines all the people in the church, or exhorts or binds the consciences of all the church, is not to be done by women in the church, but by male leaders who are qualified and called. Here's how one New Testament scholar, Tom Schreiner, defines this kind of teaching. The teaching involves the authoritative and public transmission of tradition about Christ and the scriptures. It is clear from the rest of the pastoral epistles that the teaching in view is the public transmission of authoritative material. The elders in particular are to labor in teaching so that they can refute the false teachers who advance heresy. This is the kind of teaching reserve the male leadership of the church, particularly elders and overseers. So what does that practically mean, that one restriction? It'll mean that when we ask or answer the question, can women minister in the church, we say, yes, of course. It's actually almost a silly question to ask in the first place. All Christians minister in the church and are called to all kinds of ministry. And women can teach, women can lead, women can serve, speak. We see that they're active throughout Jesus' ministry and Jesus ministers to them. But each church, then, following Paul's command here, is going to have to figure out where they draw lines and apply this text that restricts women from teaching or exercising authority in the church. And churches are going to have to work that out practically. Most common, what's that, that has meant is that the preaching is reserved for the male leaders of the church. And then when you have mixed communities like Sunday school, generally that's reserved for males, or anything that's going to be binding, authoritative teaching in the church, it's reserved for males and the male leadership. But each church is going to have to work that out practically. Each church is going to have to figure out how they apply this universal principle of quiet, submissive learning to the leadership in the church. Some might say, well, can't male leadership be abusive? Yes, absolutely it can. Tragically and sinfully, male leadership can be abusive. The point is, though, that when male leadership is abusive, it is not because of what the Bible says, but in spite of it. When male leadership is domineering, overbearing, treats people poorly and hurtful to people under it, it is not because they're listening to what Scripture says, it's because they're being disobedient to God and his call for leaders. What should biblical leadership look like? I think maybe the greatest verse on it is Ephesians 5.25, what it requires of husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without, root, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is what biblical leadership looks like. Laying your life down, serving and sacrificing for the good of the other. And any kind of male leadership that doesn't look like that has strayed from Christian leadership. And you might be a female here, female here and you say, well, this is a call to like quiet learning. I don't have that personality. Like I'm not a quiet person. I would say two things. One, I don't think this is speaking primarily about personality per se. I've got loud personalities in my own home. I understand this. But I would also say you're still called to a spirit of quietness and submission just like men are still called to not quarrel or be angry 
and I might say, but I'm naturally angry and contentious, we would say, well, stop it. It doesn't matter what you naturally are. Who are you supernaturally in Christ? God gives help, right? And some of us need a lot of it, and I'm one of those people. He calls us to these universal principles, these roles to play. Men are to pray without quarreling or fighting. Women are to adorn themselves not with ostentatious attire, but with good works. And they're to learn with a quiet spirit from the sacrificial leadership of the male teachers of the church. That's the vision. And you still may say, well, that sounds to my ears repressive, outmoded, outdated. And I would point out that when Paul lays out this vision, he doesn't say, because this is what is most appropriate in our modern time and context. What's the reason he gives for this vision? He goes back to creation. He roots these universal principles back in the way God created us to be, not according to any temporary context, but according to the way we were eternally made. That's what Paul's getting at in verses 13 through 15. Here we see the reason for the demeanors men and women should have. It's grounded in what actually happens after the fall, the disorder of men and women after creation describes what Paul talks about in verses 13 through 15. Here's why women should not try to usurp the male leadership of the church. Here's why men should serve sacrificially, quietly, not quietly, but gently, without contention, because of what happened that caused everything to go wrong in the first place. And what happened was the disorder of men and women after creation. Verses 13 through 15. Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Verse 15 is one of the weirdest verses in all of Scripture. We're going to get to it. But first, notice what Paul's argument here is. And his overall argument is simply that after creation, the creation order got usurped. And that catastrophic you know, disruption of creation order is an example of how things go bad when God's created order of men and women is messed with. That's Paul's point. Here's an example of how the creation order got messed with and things got messed up. So let's start with the created order. What is it? Adam was formed first. This is basic and obvious, but I think actually interesting. Notice in Genesis 2, the timeline of the creation of man and woman. Because we can ask ourselves, could God theoretically have made men and women at the same time? Answer, Yes almost appears in the narrative that God created sun, moon, and stars at the same time. I think he has the capability, has the, the ability to speak men and women into existence at the same time. That's not what happened. And there's a reason for it. We have to assume this is by intention, by design, that God formed Adam first, and then Adam found there was no helper, no counterpart for him, no one suitable for him, and then woman was made as a counterpart to men. Equal in image, but order of creation different. Man was created first. Then what happened? Well, man and woman were there, and they were 
given dominion over all creation, all animals. But then one of those animals reversed the creation order, didn't he? There was a serpent that came, and the serpent did what? Deceived the woman, spoke to the woman first. Now, again, in the text of Genesis 2, it'll say Adam was with her. Adam and Eve were both there. Serpent could have spoken to Adam or Eve, but he didn't. He spoke to Eve in particular. That narrative is behind what Paul is saying here, because Paul will say, Adam was formed first, and then he'll say, but it was the woman who was deceived. Is Paul saying that it's all the woman's fault? No. How do we know that? Romans 5. Paul, the same author, what does he say in Romans 5? Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. Paul lays the blame at Adam's feet for this. As does Scripture, all throughout. Scripture is an equal opportunity a blamer of men and women in this instance. And particularly, Paul lays the blame at Adam's feet for this. So he's not saying that the woman is particularly culpable for what happened here. Adam was to blame too. This is why God, when he approaches them, speaks to Adam first. Dude, this is on you. So it's not saying that the woman is to blame for this. Nor is Paul saying that the woman was particularly gullible. That's not the point either. The point is not that Eve was just so much more foolish and more easily deceived than Adam because women are inferior to men and less intelligent than men. We know from experience that's not true. I know that in my own home. I have a couple daughters who I'm convinced are smarter than I am, and it scares me, right? So we know from experience that women are not more ill-equipped or less intelligent or more gullible. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying... Adam was formed first, but Eve was deceived first, and that's where the problem was. God had laid out an order in creation, and in the fall, the serpent had intentionally reversed the order, and things got usurped and messed up, and that's what happened. There is a God-intended ordering of man and woman, and in the fall, that ordering of roles got upended. The fall of sin The fall of man and woman into sin became a chief example of what happens when the order God intends gets reversed. Kent Hughes says, We miss the point of verse 14 entirely if we think that Eve was more gullible than Adam. Eve's sin was not naivety, but a willful attempt to overthrow the creation order. Tom Schreiner says, In approaching Eve, then, the serpent subverted the pattern of male leadership and it interacted only with Eve during the temptation. The Genesis temptation, therefore, is indicative of what happens when male leadership is abrogated. Thus, the appeal to Genesis 3 serves as a reminder of what happens when God's ordained pattern is undermined. That is how things got messed up in the first place, is what Paul is saying. Is there any hope, then, for things being fixed? And this is where we get to verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love, and holiness with self-control. Here's our last challenge of the morning. What in the world does this mean? Does Paul mean that women will be saved if they have kids? That can't be what he's saying. We know that instinctually. We know that from Ephesians 2.8, which says that we are not saved by works we do, but by grace through faith, right? Right? 
we are not saved by any work, even having kids. Certainly not that. So he's not saying, and he can't be saying, that in order to be saved and receive salvation, you have to have kids. So some have tried to explain this by redefining what Paul means by saved. So he's not talking about eternal salvation. He must be talking about another kind of saved, like spared or reserved or preserved from. So that interpretation says, what Paul is saying here is that the woman will be spared or saved from usurping men by focusing on the home. The interpretation says that what Paul means is that he's speaking to the situation where women were tempted to overrule the men. He's saying you'll be saved from that temptation and that work if you instead focus on childbearing and your more maternal role at home. Here's the problem with that interpretation. The word saved never means that. The word saved in the New Testament never means spared from something in that way. It always refers to eternal salvation. So this is talking about eternal salvation, like union with God, eternal life, all that. That's what this is talking about. He's, Paul's talking about eternal salvation. So now we have to ask, how does eternal salvation relate to childbearing? What's the connection? Here's what I think this is saying. There's other interpretations. Here's my best thought. Here's what I think Paul is saying. That Paul's using a figure of speech here when he employs the word childbearing a figure of speech known as synecdoche. What is a synecdoche? It's when you talk about the whole of something by referencing only one part of it. So you're talking about the whole thing, but you're referencing only a part. Here's an example. We go home and we have mouths to feed. You know what I mean when I say that. I'm not literally saying I'm going to go and just shove food down standalone mouths. No, you know that the mouths are part of a whole, that the mouth is representative of the whole child. We have kids to feed, is what that's saying. But we're just only referencing a part of them, the mouth. That's a synecdoche, when a part represents the whole. We have mouths to feed, it's a way of saying we have entire kids to feed. So when Paul says you'll be safe through childbearing, he's talking about a part that represents the whole. And childbearing is the, the one word and the concept that Paul has chosen here to represent the whole of a woman living a life after God and godliness according to the way God has called her. That's what he's saying. Scripture is saying a woman will be saved eternally if she lives her whole life in a way that accords with God's will and design. Tom Schreiner says, when Paul says that a woman will be saved by childbearing, he means, therefore, that they will be saved by adhering to their ordained role. And childbearing is a shorthand for God's will for women in general. And you can ask, why does he use childbearing as the part, the key that would represent the whole? Why? Because childbearing is the thing, maybe the chief thing, that makes women as a whole uniquely glorious. This is the thing that God has given to you that he has not given to men. Despite what our lunatic culture says, men cannot have babies. Right? But women can. And this is the way that God has uniquely made women and equipped them in general to have children. This is what, how God has gloriously made women in a way that's unique to them. So Paul uses this one example, this one word, childbearing, as a concept for the whole thing that makes women glorious and unique. And it was particularly um, 
helpful because in that time there were false teachers who were denying marriage and family. As we read this in Paul, or from Paul in 1 Timothy 4, first few verses, there were false teachers who said, don't get married. They were against the whole kind of plan of marriage and family. So Paul uses that saying, no, actually, this is what gloriously you should do. This kind of stuff represents what God has called women to do and men to do. And if you do this, now note the condition, and if you continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control, you will be saved. So it's not that any woman will be saved so long as she has kids. It's if you continue in faith, if you have faith, the one thing necessary, if you continue in that and play your role as a woman, then you will be saved, just as men will be saved if they live godly lives according to the way God has called them. That's the vision for men and women in the church. Both living godly lives according to the way God has created them and ordered them. And some still might hear that and say this is all very repressive and oppressive to women. Christianity with its emphasis on different genders and commitment to marriage and fidelity to God's design. That's just going to produce repressed, stifled women. And I would say, well, read the Song of Solomon. I don't know. She's committed to marriage. She sound repressed. I would also say, maybe more helpfully, consider the alternatives. What is the alternative that our world proposes that is so gloriously wonderful for women? What is the world's vision for women, and for men, for that matter? A life of autonomy, not bound to God's design, not bound to each other and fidelity of marriage. Free to express our desires in any way we please, with whomever we please. Is that better? Rebecca McLaughlin in her book Confronting Christianity notes that the women in our world are not faring well, living by the norms of the world. She brings up a couple of studies related to marriage and sex and sexuality. These studies have found that men and women who cohabitate before marriage are more likely to divorce. That men express significantly less commitment than women in cohabiting relationships, meaning that women are consistently left desiring more than men are willing to give and hurt because of it. Studies have found that an increased number of sexual partners has negative psychological effects. According to one study that studied the number of partners over the course of a year and what produced the most happiness, the number of partners that produced the most happiness was one. More than one partner and happiness decreased. And studies have found that married people actually have more and more fulfilling sex on average. Who would have thunk it? The summary of this is that the modern proposal for women and for men to be independent, sexually active, free from biblical shackles of traditional roles does not actually produce happiness or health. So Rebecca McLaughlin says in her book, two years ago an agnostic friend who teaches at a world-class university told me that she routinely has female students ask her why they're having all the sometimes barely consensual sex expected of a modern woman but not experiencing the promised happiness. It's because the modern proposal for women is failing women. God proposes a better way according to scripture. Women, like men, made in the image of God. Women, like men, called to learn at the feet of Jesus and under 
men who sacrificially and selflessly lead, women who are gifted to serve and minister in the church, women who have a whole life and unique calling from God, and as a whole have this divine role of bringing life into the world. And it's through birth of children, and actually through the birth of one child specifically, that men and women are saved. Maybe the ultimate glory of women is that God has chosen childbearing as the means to save the world. He brought salvation to all people through the birth of Jesus Christ. We might think some roles are beneath us. We praise God the role of Savior was not beneath his son. That being made in the likeness of men was not beneath him. He was born a child of a woman. And because of the order and roles God has assigned to women and men, God was born a man and lived among us and died for our sins, saving men and women. We will mess things up. As sinful people, we will treat women poorly, we will treat men poorly. But the beauty of the gospel narrative is that God deeply loves men and women and has used both to bring salvation into the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we read this passage, we're reminded that we have, all of us, an awesome responsibility to live humbly, gently, quiet, holy lives. Not fighting for our own way, but living in submission to you and your word. We pray, Lord, I think maybe most of all myself, I pray that our church would not be a church that abuses any under its care. But that we would fight for the health, happiness, and ultimately salvation and redemption of all. And we know we can only do that as we trust and obey you and your goodwill for us. Help us to think according to your word, not our own instincts, your ways, not the ways of our world. So we trust that you are good and want good for us, and we know this because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.